you feel like climate change is the last thing on your radar, a problem either too big to deal with or something you feel like is not really affecting you day to day, doctors like me are seeing how the climate and all of the changes we're seeing are affecting our patients' health every day in different ways across the country and around the world. Whether it's allergies that feel more severe or are happening earlier than ever before, or recent brushes with severe heat waves, evacuations because of hurricanes, difficulty breathing because of wildfires, we're seeing climate change affecting the health of our patients right now. And not just that, burning dirty fuels like coal and gas and diesel not only releases the carbon pollution that is driving climate change, it also unleashes toxic chemicals that pollute the air that we, our families, our kids, our elders are all breathing with every breath we take. So how do we wrap our brains around the climate questions affecting our health? And what are realistic things that we can actually do? Today, I'm talking to Dr. Aaron Bernstein, leader of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at Harvard Chan School of Public Health. He's the person I always turn to with my climate and health questions. Well, you are a man that wears many hats, and so I always feel grateful that I can reach out to you for questions as a pediatrician working on the front lines, climate change and health researcher, and a climate change and health communicator. So today I was hoping to do something a little different because I feel like as someone who wears a similar hat sometimes in, in terms of climate change and health communicator... We see the headlines are filled with dire, dire warnings, especially when it comes to children. So, you know, our children today are going to see maybe three times more extreme climate disasters um, than their grandparents did in their lifetimes. By 2050, pretty much every child on the planet may experience an extreme deadly heat wave. So let's try to do a good news, bad news, good news sandwich frame today. How does that sound to you? Delicious. <laughs> All right. So starting with the good news, why do you consider yourself, and I've heard you say this, a climate optimist? I consider myself a climate optimist by external force. I have been fortunate to have been influenced um, by many people, including Gina McCarthy, uh, who uh, was uh, the director of the EPA under Obama and the National Climate Advisor in the Biden administration, uh, as well as uh, Marcy Frank, who writes our center's newsletter, The Climate Optimist. And, you know, I, I can be pretty thick-headed, but let's be honest with each other. You know, most normal people would much rather have something to do that's going to be good for them and their families than have to run away from something that is terrifying. And so in this realm of helping us move forward, how do we take steps to help us move forward on climate? We, we absolutely need to recognize that even with all the headlines you describe, there's equal, if not more, good news. And the challenge is media often doesn't 
pick up on that because people pick up and pay for, you know, catastrophe stories. So uh, that's that's why I'm a climate optimist. I'm a climate optimist because there's a lot to be optimistic about. I'm a climate optimist because the reality is we absolutely need to act on this. And the best way forward is to really point out the ways in which climate actions benefit health, benefit the health of children, are critical for advancing health equity, among other other goods. That's great. And I think I'd love to start with that point, that this is achievable and that we should aim to do this work with optimism. And that being said, let's get into some of the realities of what we are facing right now. So I think in order to brave the the realities of what we're facing, um, we need to know the depths of, of what the concerns are. So when it comes to climate change and health and the health of children, can you talk us through some of the direct effects? And then we'll talk about some more of the indirect effects. But what are the direct effects that you're seeing on the front lines with, with children and climate change? Sure. Uh, I, I think it's to start with, critical to acknowledge that there's no part of child health or anybody's health that isn't affected by climate. So you pick a dimension of your wellness and health that's important to you. And I will guarantee you that the rising concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere matters directly to that. Uh, In the realm of children, I think there are some ways that people see are obvious. You know, when there are fires and hurricanes, floods, uh, which climate change is is making more more dangerous, those have direct effects on children's mental health. In the case of fires, air quality and lungs. Uh, in the case of, of hurricanes and floods, exposure to waterborne diseases. All those things cause power outages. And so um, when you look out at what is preventing uh, children in this country around the world from, from uh, attaining their full potential, uh, in the United States, we see huge burdens of disease from obesity. You see huge mental health uh, challenges, uh, asthma, allergies, uh, you name it. In each of those challenges, climate actions pose a solution. And I think that's what's so um, I, compelling to me is that even if climate change weren't happening, we would still want to make transportation different. We would still want to address the reality that children aren't getting enough exercise, that our transportation systems emit huge amounts of pollution that causes one in five children to have asthma. That's our uh, best estimates. That's work of Susan Annenberg at, at George Washington. Uh, you know, the other piece is that <laughs> the pandemic has made so painfully obvious the consequences of allowing health disparities to fester. Right. So we, mm-hmm. you know, we 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 pat ourselves on the back to see reductions in certain health disparities, although there are ones that have not really been. Um, have gotten worse, uh, saying, you know, we've made progress. But the extent to which health disparities exist between, um, you know, black Americans, uh, white Americans, uh, Hispanic Americans, uh, y- you know, uh, indigenous peoples uh, and other groups, um, these fissures are exactly the weaknesses in society that pandemics exploit and so too for climate uh, right. shocks, as I like to call them. A- and so, if you care about health equity, you absolutely need climate action. And again, we, we, we see the opportunities here to, to enable greater progress on achieving gains in health equity through climate actions. Uh, and, and I think uh, on, the, on the inverse of that, climate change unmitigated, if we don't do what we need to do to really reduce our emissions 
people who have money are going to be better off. And that that gap between those who have resources and those who do not, whether it's within your own community or around the world, is going to explode. Uh, and that's not good for anybody. That's the, that's, the, that's the soil in which pandemics take root, conflicts, you name it. So there's just this huge opportunity to prevent unnecessary harms by acting more rapidly to reduce emissions. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things as you're talking that really becomes clear is that the threats are all intertwined. So if we take the right actions, we can really attack all of these problems um, that are that are really central to what we're going to be seeing in, in the coming decades and, and that we're already seeing. So as a mom of three daughters, uh, two of which were born about 10 years ago before this was really something that was a big part of my consciousness. And then the third was born during COVID. So she's my COVID baby, but she's also my climate change baby. So she is that baby that has already experienced here in Atlanta, you know, several very severe floods, warnings around tornadoes. Um, And these are things that have stuck with my older children where they'll say, oh, I don't want to go to the beach on vacation. I'm just scared that we're going to hit a hurricane or something. We're going to have to evacuate. How, what are you seeing on the front lines with your patients? What are some of the children talking to you about? Well, the biggest thing that I hear from young people, uh, children included in that group, uh, is the mental distress like the child who who um, you know is maybe more a little more vigilant than other kids? Like I don't know, they want to go there. The fires, uh, uh, and then of course it, it you know in other communities uh, it, it's about the fossil fuels. I, I, I remember um, working with some uh, people who were in fracking country, Ohio, and how natural gas was the best economic reality uh, opportunity that that community had seen in, in generations and how it pitted neighbors against neighbors because some were allowing gas to be developed and others were not. Uh, and the families that had were making huge amounts of money, um, but risking pollution exposures, which weren't just theirs, but potentially right. <laughs> others. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's a reality of, of climate as well as is it how it has politicized energy in a way that is, you know, energy has always been political, but it is now hyper political. I mean, this whole thing with the gas stoves in recent weeks is just uh, that that um, that issue in, in spades. Uh, but I see that affecting children. Right. So it changes the dynamics of their communities in ways that are not good for the kinds of communities we know are critical to buffering the adverse childhood events that cumulatively can can result in harms uh, in health across the board uh, into adulthood. In, I would say, more affluent communities where, um, you know, education opportunities are, are arguably greater in some cases, uh, you see the focus directly on climate. But that's not to say that it isn't showing up in lower wealth communities in, in other ways. Um, and I think to me, across the board, and this gets back to the point we were just talking about, we have got to do a better job of engaging young people on climate because the solution to despair is action. Uh, we, we can't just stand by and tell them that, you know, the, the, all the science that says we don't do anything, it's going to be terrible. Uh, and we, we do, we've done a reasonably, if not too good job of that already. <laughs> Uh, we haven't done half as good a job at pointing out the job opportunities, the career paths, 
the opportunity to advance justice and equity. Um, the reality that, you know, one in five, you know, everybody knows somebody with asthma, that one in five children's country of asthma from breathing exhaust. We can, we can fix that. Uh, we know how to do that. Um, I think there's a lot of potential there to, to make sure that we're, we're giving our children's minds the opportunity to, to live in the world in, in, in peace. Uh, and I think that's a critical, a critical job for us right now. Yeah, I think that you hit on something so important there, which is that just talking about the threats without talking about the opportunity um, is just a way to engender more inaction or denial in people because that becomes a defense mechanism to feel safe. Children, adults, all of us want to feel safe in our environment. We want to feel like there's some control or some stability in what we're going to see from day to day. And when we are told that we may lose that or we are losing that, it's hard not to run away from that unless we also have that message of opportunity of here's an action that we can all take together to improve things. I think it's been amazing living in Atlanta, seeing that in our lower resource neighborhoods, community gardens, um, you know, streets alive where they shut down roads um, to prevent um, you know, car traffic and just allow people to walk um, from place to place. What are you seeing in different communities around the country that, that gives you hope in, in that way? You know, history has a tendency of repeating itself. So this issue of urban green space has never been, a, you know, it's never been more prominent than it is right now, particularly in communities where that green space is absent. Uh, the irony to me is that Eleanor Roosevelt during the war years started the Victory Gardens program where she recognized that people living in cities needed green space and particularly in that case to grow food, but also because, you know, turns out that humans need nature to be okay. But when you think about some of the health issues, uh, whether it is nutrition related, whether it is mental health related, whether it is heat related, uh, whether it is water related, I mean, the list goes on. Urban green space offers benefits. <laughs> and, and so it, it's sort of a no-brainer, but the foundational mistake that has been made historically is it hasn't been inclusive, right? So, you know, justice, in my um, in, in one view of it, um, which I, I tend to subscribe to, starts with inclusion. And so it's not adequate to just throw, you know, trees in a neighborhood, you need to do it with 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 real engagement from from the folks who live there, which I know sounds totally obvious and and, and probably patronizing, but the reality is that hasn't happened. Right. Uh, but it is happening more and more. And so you see, King County in Seattle has the first transportation based health uh, health equity based transportation plan, right? So King County is where Seattle is, and they really thought about. Communities that didn't have access to transportation, they thought about the health equity implications. And then, oh, by the way, this is a climate solution, right? It's about not only mitigation, but resiliency to climate. Uh, and that's increasingly part of it. Um, food systems. So you see more and more communities recognizing the benefits of local, locally grown foods, not for climate. Uh, it's because people actually like to know who grows their food. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that I, I just think is, is easy to lose sight of in a place like the United States is how critical it is to human wellness and welfare to have individuals connected to culture and place. Mm. That our identities of ourselves are found in this. And in a country which has benefited so, so much from, in, in some ways, its diversity and, and, and from enabling freedoms of people of movement and so forth, 
What's lost in that, and this has been described, you know, since sociologists first thought about it with urbanization in the 19th century, that the detachment from place and culture is actually really hard for people to be okay with. And so, you know, whether it's the mental health, again, piece, whether it's the local economies, all these things. And then, of course, giving people access to hopefully more affordable fruits and vegetables, although there's a clear split here. There's rich people's farmers markets where it's $10 for a tomato. And then there's access to nutritious food in lower wealth communities where you have urban gardens, um, community supported agriculture that really does increase the access to these, uh, uh, you know, pieces that are missing from many people's diets at a, at a four place. It's just another example. So there are lots of other examples of how climate change has been brought down to size, put into communities in ways that meet the needs right now of those communities. I think sometimes when you get down to the, well, maybe climate change is not the motivating factor for you, but there are things that you can do to improve your health, like, you know, moving toward a plant forward diet, the community gardens, making your space more walkable, more green, that are just going to be beneficial to your health. And yes, oh, by the way, these also have impacts on mitigating and helping us adapt to to the climate change factors that we're going to see in the future. So more heat, um, more floods potentially. But if we've set our society up for success, then this is going to be a great byproduct. Taking care of ourselves is going to be a great byproduct for protecting ourselves from future climate threats. Yes, there's no question that there are win-wins here on the resilience front as well. And, you know, None of the extreme events that climate change is influencing are new, <laughs> right. um, but they're getting, you know, in some cases more severe. And, and I think that, again, in, in many ways, the, the, the social fabric that's needed to make people resilient is part and parcel, not just of what we need for climate, but for other strains upon our communities, yeah. pandemics, economic shocks. Uh, you know, having people understand how their communities work, knowing people in their community, having relationships that are built over time uh, are really indispensable pieces of making sure that, you know, we're resilient to whatever comes our way. Of course, there are unique attributes of climate. I think heat is a particularly important one because, you know, we don't generally think of heat as a problem, uh, especially in cooler places. And, you uh, it, it, like so many other strains, really does disproportionately affect, um, uh, you know, certain communities, particularly older individuals, younger individuals, uh, lower wealth communities, which often in the United States are, are uh, Black American, Hispanic American communities. Um, you know, there, there are things that we specifically need to focus on there. Um, but even those things we talked about, the urban greening being a good example, have a swath of benefits that would be really good even if it weren't getting hotter out. Um, and so, yes, I, I think it is absolutely critical to make sure we're linking climate action to things that people are focused on right now um, and, and, and make, those, make those connections as best we can. What makes children uniquely vulnerable? What is different about the biology, the physiology of children um, that parents should be aware of as we're thinking about certain climate threats like heat? Sure. Uh, you know, children can be more at risk from climate for a number of reasons. Heat, uh, you know, if you're, you know, we sadly see every year too many children left in hot cars. 
that's not something children can can address. Um, their organs are still developing. So if a child is dosed with air pollution, whether that's from wildfires or ozone, two kinds of air pollution that are influenced by climate, um, those that children's lungs are probably not going to develop as well. Uh, and and you know the abstraction of a child's lungs not working as well can be made quite concrete in the realm of a respiratory pandemic, where it's very clear that adults who have worse lung function, their lungs don't work as well, are more likely to die. Well, yeah. some of those people, it's because they smoke. Some of them, it's they were born that way. Some of them, it's because they've been breathing air pollution. And we saw this. There's very good data showing that people who have had higher exposures over decades to very small differences in air quality have substantially different risks of dying from COVID, but it's also true of other respiratory diseases. So, you know, we have the opportunity to, you know, again, enable children, allow children to live up to their full potential. That means giving their lungs the best chance of growing and developing. And oh, by the way, that air pollution that damages the lungs also harms their brains. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that the developing organs, you pick your favorite, are all in play here. And and I think that's, you know, that that's that's where vulnerability comes from. Um, and, and I think one last piece here is is in this broader area of adverse childhood events. So I think it's really important for everyone to understand that the first several years of a child's life have more import to the rest of that individual's life and certainly to any other, let's say, three-year period across lifespan uh, to their, their welfare. Uh, that's both mental health, physical health, um, and over childhood adverse events, whether that is um, uh, uh exposure to violence, um, uh, stress in the home, uh, violence in the home, uh, illness, uh, anything that is a real stressor, um, if those things go unbuffered, if there's not a supportive adult, if there's not access to support for that child and comfort, it takes a toll. And that toll is across the lifespan. So we're talking about early childhood exposure, we are talking about potential risks from these pollutants in the gas stove. So benzene, nitrogen oxides. Um, and the question is, for a lot of people, well, I've got a gas stove. I cannot afford to remove this from my house. I've got a gas stove. Now this is something else that I need to be stressed about that I've ruined my child's life uh, forever. And really how much of an impact does this even make? It's a yeah. lot of questions, a lot of threads. Yeah. I'd like you to to make make me a, a sweater out of that or something, okay. a nice scarf. <laughs> I'm not known for my, my darning <laughs> skills, but I'll do my best. The pollutants of biggest concern there are oxides of nitrogen. We call them NOx. In particular, nitrogen dioxide or one nitrogen hitched to two oxygen atoms. And that chemical in the air has been known for decades to be a problem for lungs. And also it turns out for hearts and also probably for brains. But nonetheless, the issue at hand is lungs. And it there's also research showing that if you have a gas stove in a relatively small kitchen that isn't ventilated, meaning there's no air circulation, uh, you can raise the concentration of, of NO2 to levels that are you know, by most estimations, pretty clearly going to be harmful. <laughs> um, they're, you know, based on lots of research. So um, most kitchens hopefully are not the kinds where there's no ventilation, but there probably are some. Uh, and 
so what do you do? Well, you if you, certainly if you have a vent, whether that's a hood over the stove or a down vent that goes behind the stove, you know, use it even if you're boiling water. So a lot of people think the vent is for when you're doing smoky cooking, smoke, you know, like smoke's coming off the pan, but you should use it even if you're boiling water. Uh, if you don't have that, and this is where the equity piece comes in to your point earlier, which is a lot of the folks who are going to run out and buy induction cooktops, their exposure to air pollution outside the home is probably much less than everybody else because turns out pollution and poverty are friends and the lower wealth uh, communities are breathing worse air pollution in general. Mm-hmm. And their stoves are probably a fraction of that. Um, but nonetheless, if you don't have uh, a, a, a range with a hood or a vent, um, you know, can you open a window? Can you open a door? Can you use a fan to blow air through your kitchen? Uh, and then there's just like risk reduction, right? So minimize the use of the gas stove, you know, don't leave it on necessarily. If there's someone in the home with already has lung issues, can they be outside that room at least, or even outside, you know, as a pediatrician in my practice, I'm often struck at how often parents of children who have, you know, asthma or other chronic diseases don't, haven't, you know, been, been informed that, you know, idling a car an attached garage puts air pollution into the home or burning things, whatever it is in the home makes air pollution, which, you know, and, and so I think this is, this is part of, part of that. The bigger picture picture for me is, is the health equity piece, right? So the homes that are least well ventilated with probably the leakiest gas stoves that are the most inefficient, creating the most pollution in the small spaces are almost you know, overwhelmingly going to be in lower wealth communities where the air pollution, as I mentioned before, is going to be worse. And so they're maybe least able to also replace that. Uh, And so I think about the IRA, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, and its funds going into states and communities to decarbonize. The focus has been on boilers for heating and an air condition, you know, it's electrification, all those things. And I think it is one critical that even for those things, we again focused on the lowest wealth communities. But two, uh, we should include gas stoves in that, uh, especially, you know, in my ideal world, to be focused on those homes where there are already children with asthma. Because to your question earlier, you know, the more we can protect those lungs in childhood, the more, more likely that adult is going to be able to live a healthy, productive, long life. Right. Uh, you you did. You knitted a really nice sweater with those threads. I think that that's one issue that ha- brings in sort of the politics, the partisanship, the sort of this, div- you know, yes, gas stove, no gas stove and with, you know, but ultimately, the key point is, we all want to make sure that we're protecting the health of our children. And we have to sort of do it in the way that fits within our ability without feeling guilt or shame or stressed to do something that's outside of our scope. And then having policy measures in place that allow us, if we're not able to do this, that allow us to be able to to make the switch to things that are just healthier in, in terms of risk mitigation. So I appreciate that. What is your sort of message, if I haven't touched on it yet, in terms of why others out there should be climate optimists and what we can do um, in our lives to, to take that optimism and turn it into action? People always ask, how is it that, you know, I can persist when there's so much bad news? <laughs> and, and I think, you know, it comes from the issues we talked about before. One is that there is actually a lot of good news if you can actually find, you know, find it, which isn't always so easy. Uh, and, and then <clears throat> the reality is that if you really care about this, I think 
in some ways we're obliged to to focus on the good news because if you want stuff to change, focusing on <clears throat> the bad news is not going to get us where we need to go. Um, I, I think in, also in terms of motivation for me, you know, I'm a pediatrician. Uh, my job is to keep children healthy. If I take my job seriously, this is a part of that. Uh, and then, of course, I have children. And uh, I, I often ask myself, um, you know, at the end of my life, if I'm looking back, are the things that I did things that I said, boy, that that was time well spent? Or was I just messing around, not doing anything meaningful? And it's very I think compelling to any parent to say whatever way you find it meaningful to engage here, whether that is in the creative arts, uh, through engineering and finding solutions, through helping people understand why this matters to health and health equity, uh, you know, whatever it is, uh, that's, I think, a helpful piece to deal with the, the headwinds that, that are inevitably going to be there. Um, I also think it's really important that, uh, we acknowledge that change is hard, uh, and particularly in the face of such divisiveness in our country where we've lost sight of what our common values are and what's important, and instead are just interested in, in, in being angry with each other. You know, there's a lot of opportunity for people to be misled. There's no question that social media has opened up avenues for people being duped. Uh, and, and the, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to address that. But part of that is again, through engagement in communities. And I have such great admiration for so many people around the country who, despite <laughs> the challenges, uh, have, have, have really done extraordinary work, uh, in all kinds of arenas to really do the grassroots and grassroots engagement that is, that is, that is absolutely critical. And I think that that is a, a really important part of this, uh, as well. I, again, thank you for your time. I could really talk to you about this for hours on end. So we'll probably have to have you back to talk some more. Well, I don't know if you'd want to hear me talk for hours on end. I, and I'm confident there are other folks who would be even even better better equipped to talk about many of these issues. But I'm grateful for the chance to be with you, Neha. Thank you again for your time. For more information about Ari Bernstein and Harvard's Sea Change Program, look them up online. Thanks for listening to Health Discovered, a podcast by WebMD. I'm Dr. Neha Patak, Chief Physician Editor of Health and Lifestyle Medicine, and I hope this episode empowered you to take one small climate and health action. See you next time.